Amen. Make sure. I'm... Hello, I can't hear myself. Okay. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah. Just the beginning. I think we need a bit. It, give me more volume, please. It's not. I'm. Keep praying. That's better. That's better. Keep praying for my voice. It's. Um, you can hear it's a bit rough. Amen. Well, let's turn to day three. And the main title, really, for today is The Kingdom of David. And all it teaches us about the kingdom of God. As I mentioned in the notes, there are 77, I counted it just a few days ago, 77 long chapters. That's a massive amount of scripture. Devoted to this kingdom and um, how it gradually emerged and uh, the battle that went on for some time between the house of Saul and the house of David. And as I was reading it, it seemed to me like I was reading current American church history. Hello. And it's a very real battle that's going on in our nation and we've got to make sure that we're on the right side. Because only one side wins. Hello. And uh, we're going to look at this and uh, I think many of the applications will be obvious, but the Bible, once David's kingdom has been established, it keeps going back to it. Everything from then on is measured by how much it was done like it was in the days of David. Every other kingdom, every other king was measured by how much he did it like David. And if he did it like David, God was pleased. And the degree to which he didn't do it like David then that king was not regarded as being holy in the purpose and the will of God. Then we come into the new, and of course through the prophecies, we're told again and again that when Jesus comes, he's going to be the fulfillment of that which David allegorically produced in the kingdoms. And again and again, David was told, I'm going to raise up a son who's going to sit on this throne forever, and we know, of course, that's all talking about Jesus. And so what we can see is tremendous parallelism between the church and the kingdom of David. That's why it's so absolutely relevant. That's why there's such an enormous piece of scripture. And, uh, and if you, like I, have sat there and just soaked it all in, and remember once again that almost every psalm, almost every psalm was written in that brief period in which David's tabernacle was raised. David's tabernacle was in existence for 33 and a half years, exactly the same measure as the earthly life of our Lord Jesus. Now, is that a coincidence? I don't know, but it all seems to point to me very powerfully in one direction. So I want us to look at that today, and then we will then continue on to look at what should government in the kingdom look like. Now, that's our, that's our goal today, because without government... We read this yesterday, there can be no kingdom. Hello. So that's a very, very big issue. And some of us are going to have to face the fact that what we are in and what we've been taught isn't necessarily the way God wants it to be. We're going to have to make some changes. Amen. Amen. And we was, to me, one of the most, 
wonderful and yet at the same time one of the most tragic people in scripture is Jonathan. I think he had the most wonderful personality of anybody that I read of in scripture and the destiny for Jonathan I believe was to be right beside David in the kingdom. But his, if you like, his, listen to me carefully, his denominational loyalty, hello, he got killed in the wrong place and, and never ever fulfilled the destiny that was upon his life. And there comes a point when your loyalty to Saul has to be faced as it could be hindering where God wants to take you in the purposes of God. And can you hear me say that? I hope you can. All right. Now, let me just say this before we get into it. To me, one of the most tragic books in the whole Bible is the book of Judges. What staggers me is that these people of God who've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years finally cross over Jordan in the most miraculous way and enter into this promised land in the most incredible way with this great leader Joshua which of course is another name for Jesus I'm sure you understand that and while Joshua and his elders remained they stayed in the the if you like the law of God but the moment those last guys died uh, it seems like something went crazy and the, the, the rate at which it declined, the, the depth of degradation, the wickedness and the sins which were so quickly committed by God's people, you think, how could they get so quickly from where they were to this degraded mess that they became? And as you look at that, you realise that if it's not in people's hearts, uh, they will quickly revert back to what's in their hearts. So to me, what we, what we train people to do externally is so unimportant compared with what they actually become in their hearts. Amen? And I'm looking for heart change because that's what God's looking for. And God, as we are told plainly, he looks on the heart and not on the outward appearance. Jesus said, let these words sink down into your heart. Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe. And you'll find the emphasis all through the New Testament, and of course it's there in the Old Testament too, is that it's only what our heart appropriates, and it's only heart change that is of any lasting significance as far as God is concerned. And, and uh, I want my heart to be right. And God looked upon David, he said, Here is a man after my own heart, through whom I was able to do all my will. Now that's, the, 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 that's how God summarizes the life of David. And I said, God, I want that to be written across my life by any means. How about you? Yeah. On the other hand, Saul spoke his own testimony as he looked upon his own declining kingdom and the inevitability, he knew that God's hand had been taken off him and that David was being exalted in his place. And as he faced this honestly, for one flash of honesty, he said, I have played the fool, I have erred exceedingly. I do not want that written across my tombstone, do you? And I want to tell you this, that the, what I'm going to call Saulish tendencies are very alive and active and unfortunately very accepted in charismatic church life. And unfortunately, although it's not said very often, we often allow the fact, we, we allow the principle, which I think is totally non-kingdom, is that the end justifies the means. It never does in the kingdom of God, never. 
So if we get an apparently right result by a wrong methodology, then it's cursed of God, and it will not stand. Now into this frightful mess of the book of Judges, we find a recurring statement. I think it comes, if I remember correctly, about seven or eight times. And it says this. It gives, this is the explanation for this mess. It says, there was no king in Israel, and each one did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, we're back to the basic problem that the moment man or woman steps into independence, they are a servant of Satan, they're not a servant of God. If they walk in obedience and submission to the great God who is the ruler, or if you like, the king. Remember that the word king means ruler, it means despot. The word kingdom means rulership or government. Remember, that's what these things mean. And so when it talks about king, we're actually... Uh, and of course, later on as we come today, we'll find that, that God's heartbreak was that they had rejected him from being king. He said, they rejected me from being king. So, okay, let's try another way then. We'll let another, a man be king, but let's have a man whose heart at least is submissive to me. Now, that's, that's the issue. Uh, and, and I'd want us to see that absolutely clearly, that uh, uh, we looked at all these various forms of government briefly yesterday. None of them work. And uh, we've got to uh, say, at least in the kingdom, we're going to get it right. Otherwise, it, if we don't get it right, it's not the kingdom. Amen? Yeah. That's why it's, the kingdom's called the kingdom, because it's an issue. It's an issue, of, finally, of government. The kingdom of God is the government of God, or it's the rule of God. And if we're in the kingdom, then God has the right to say how we do things. So the mess of the book of Judges is summarized biblically for us, as each one doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king. And so let's now move into, move into the notes, and um, we first of all, like page 19 it is in your notes, and I just made a note here that God's people often have to taste the false before they're ready for the true. I mean, you think of the wilderness, when they left Egypt, if they had been ready for war, it says in Exodus 13, he could have taken them straight into the promised land. In six weeks, they could have been in their inheritance. And he said, I couldn't take them by way of the Philistines because if I had, they would have not had a heart for war and they would have gone back to Egypt. And so I want to, you know, because you see, you can't establish the kingdom without being a warring people. And, of course, we're talking about spiritually warring people. Yeah. And uh, that prophecy that Eileen brought this morning, I felt God was calling us again to this. Yeah. We're not going to save America. We're not going to impact any nation on the face of the earth without we recognize that this is a time of war. Right. Amen. Amen? So, well, I don't like that sort of preaching or teaching. Well, that's the only thing that's going to save us is, is that we get a militant warring people because I tell you, the devil is militantly committed to taking this nation over, corrupting it, and bringing his own foul kingdom to replace what we have enjoyed for a period of time. But it's being stolen from us, by the, not by the power of the devil, but by the apathy of God's people. And we've got to come back to war. Amen? And in our 
brothers from Africa and from India, I believe that because there is a warring spirit in God's people, they're going to be demonstrating to us how quickly a dark and demonic continent become glowing with glorious light because he found a church that was willing to wage war. And the brothers there know far more about dealing with principalities and powers and overthrowing demonic spirits than we presently know in the United States. But we need to become quick learners. Amen? All right. So let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's coming. I'm sorry to sound a bit serious, but I am serious. I, I, I feel the burden. I got up at 1 o'clock this morning. I just woke up and God told me to go to the scriptures and he told me to, to say a, a lot more about uh, this, the Saulish temperament and the David temperament. He said, this is one of the main issues of the church right now. So I've, I've, I typed out last night between one and three, four more sets of notes, which we're going to duplicate and give to you because I, I want you to really be thorough in examining your own heart and examining the leadership which you are putting together. And if you find Saul around there, please, please be firm and strong about dealing with it. Amen? If it's in your own heart, then kill it. <laughs> Amen? All right, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And, and we, we find that the people of God... Uh, let's come to verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all nations. Perhaps we can just stop here for a moment and say, Often the cry for people to have a human leader is because of the failure of spiritual men to keep people genuinely in touch with God. So if they can't have the genuine uh, release of wisdom of God, then they'll find a human alternative. And one of the tragedies is in the United States is that the church has totally failed to be the minister of God's life and of God's world to a, a desperate nation. And so they've gone to find other solutions to the problem. It's allowed secular humanism to take firm root over our nation. And, and you, you think, this is so strange because there is Eli where it all began and now Samuel. So these, and this is a very, very real danger which I was guilty of for a time. You can be so lost in the Lord, and this is where prophetic people have got to be very, very careful. That you have your personal life with God, the Holy Spirit, and you become almost detached from the world and detached from responsibility to the world. When I, I meet certain ministries and certain groups that I would have to say that they're so intense on having another fantastic conference where we live in the presence of God. Now, what could be wrong with that? Well, if that's all we want to do, then we are, we are ab abandoning our responsibility for this world all around us. I say they're trying to get to heaven too soon. They just want to live in God's presence and, and, and they don't want to even face the fact that there's, there's a dying world all around them that's got to be reached. 
Now, I find in the Lord Jesus, I find the perfect balance. You'll find in Scripture that he only withdrew, apart from his initial 40 days of fasting, he only withdrew for refreshment for two days at a time, and then he was back in the fight. Now, we need those two-day frequent retreats. I think perhaps we need to adjust the pattern of our life to get more frequent refreshments, but they should not be, like to go on six-month sabbatical, I mean, Okay, if God tells you to do it, okay. But I, I think, um, why do you want to do that for? I mean, get three days, get charged up and get back into the fight. Amen? Now, that's total heresy, so you don't have to take, <laughs> take too much notice of that. But I think you can hear what I'm trying to say here. I mean I, I mean, I can't imagine a general of our armies in the natural saying, well, I need six months refreshment before I can come back into the battle. You can't do that. But to have... Like, I mean, the Lord Jesus is the perfect pattern in all things. But we need to be engaged in the warfare, but we do need to retreat back into the glory of Almighty God in order to be recharged to go back again into that warfare. That's why I'm convinced that God is speaking to us very powerfully about the raising up of tabernacles of David in practical reality, which are going to be places we go into as leaders. We get refreshed in order to come back out again to fight more effectively. Because this is the pattern that we're going to see was the pattern that God finally raised up. But I want to see that it was failure of spiritual leadership which made the people err to seek a natural king. So Samuel, we told, verse 6, prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hear or heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should reign over them, or I should be king over them. And however, verse 9, you shall solemnly warn them, forewarn them, and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the people, and he says in verse 12, he will appoint captains of thousands and fifties and he will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain, verse 15. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and he said, no, but we will have a king over us. And then they give four reasons why they want a king. I've already mentioned the first one. It was the failure of the spiritual leadership that they were presently experiencing. Number two, we want to be like other nations. Number three, they wanted the king to go and fight their battles. And what we've done, I believe, is we've looked for outstanding ministry to go and fight the battles for us. You'll find this, the same thing happened in the days of Abraham when four kings, I'm sorry, five kings went to fight four kings. And all these kings ended up defeated by the four kings. In fact, it says they ended up in their own slime pits. <laughs> and that to me is a picture of some of these power ministries that we've been relying on since the 40s. We've been looking for a great healing evangelist or a great leader and we're prepared to send our tithes to him for him to go and do all the fighting and we'll just support him while he does it on our behalf. Now, there's dangers with this, and the danger is that exalting that man to such a position till he becomes like a god to us. Because notice what God said. He said that they're going to worship this king, and, and he's going to replace me. Now, that's the problem that I have. And as a result, we've made kings out of ministries, 
and they've been put under tremendous demonic pressure on the one hand, and they've been almost worshipped and adored by the multitude of God's people on the other hand, and it's not surprising that they begin to think that they are something special and they're deceived and trapped. And the tragedy of so many of those great ministries at the end of their ministries, we all know about. How many of them ended up in error, in uh, sin, and all, and, and I tell you, we surely should have learned by now that this, this king fighting for his ministry is not the thing. Now what, what we have to look for, and we'll see that this is what David finally did, was he set up a structure of warfare where he had, if you like, the governmental headship, but it, it wasn't, he wasn't just a solo king. He set up his mighty man. We're going to see all these principles during today. And as a result, it produced an army that knew how to fight. And we see in the New Testament, we see the equivalent there when the purpose of the Ephesian 4 ministry is not to put on a dazzling display of the gifts of the Spirit that just leave you in awe. The purpose of them is to bring the body to the function of ministry. In other words, if I'm an Ephesians 4 prophet, I produce multitudes of prophetic people. If I'm an Ephesians 4 uh, pastor, I produce a multitude of pastoral people. If I'm an Ephesians 4 evangelist, I get the church evangelizing. I get the church moving in evangelism, and all I do is to teach them, train them, and see where the gifted people are, pull them out, oversee them, and then send the body back to do the work. Now, that's the picture that I see in the Bible. Amen? Amen. And that's what we basically see in the Davidic kingdom. All right, so for these, they, they had these, uh, they wanted a king, verse 20, to tell them what to do. And, you know, we've got to be a little bit careful of these prophetic presbyteries. To me, it's almost like Christian horoscopes. Now, there's a, obviously... I'm just being deliberately one-sided to try and shock you. <laughs> of, course, of course, I believe in prophecy, and I believe in personal prophecies. But it, can be, it become, become so exaggerated that people go from conference to conference to get their word from God. And uh, all I need to do is to get on my knees, and God speaks to me himself. Um, and it's, I mean, sometimes I've had a great prophetic word, um, which has been very helpful, very confirmatory. But God has called all of us, this is what it says in the, in the New Testament, I will make a new covenant with these people. What, what is it? I will write my laws in their mind and in their heart and I will be a father to them and they will to be, be to me a son. In other words, we're all to have this relationship. We're all, we're told, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. While there's a, there's a place and I thank God for some of these tremendous prophetic words, what should be happening is it should be resonating with what God has already said in my heart. It should be confirmatory. But we, we do not want kings to go to God and come back and tell us what we are to do. And we have no understanding of what's being said to us. Would you agree with that? If you don't, it doesn't matter. It's still true. <laughs> no, I know, you, I know you, you're very merciful to me, okay? Okay. Let's go on to the next page. God sees the real motive in rejecting him as their king. But he says to Samuel, give them what they want, but warn them of the consequences. And then Saul 
is chosen. He's a complex person who typifies, and I say this quite advisedly from what I know, I mean, who typifies many in Christian leadership today. And we must be ruthless to deal with all Saulish tendencies. The thing about Saul was, we're told this in Scripture, that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. It was a picture of natural strength and natural ability and natural intellect replacing true spiritual dependence, sensitivity, submission and obedience. For example, during Saul's reign, they did not inquire at the ark, symbolising God's presence at all. Let me just backtrack a little here because we haven't really time to do as much as I would like about this, but let's just consider this for a moment. Um, when they wanted to go into battle in the, the, book of, um, uh, the book of Judges, right at the beginning there, in the days of Eli the high priest, They'd been a very backslidden people, and, but they, had, they went and got the Ark of the Covenant and took it into battle as a kind of, you know, good luck charm. It's, it's rather like when the Crusaders went to war with the cross. It's the same sort of thing. And because of the, and they made a tremendous shout. I mean, they would have, they would have impressed any charismatic meeting today with the, with the tremendous vigor and shouting and noise which they made. But the trouble was that if you make a lot of charismatic noise and there's sin in the camp, all it does is it stirs up enemy opposition and makes the devil fight harder. And if we are filthy and unclean with unresolved sin in our midst. It, that great charismatic shout of, and I hear terrible things said in some Christian meetings. I heard one guy get up and say, oh, come on, and I won't use the word he used, but it, let's kick the backside of the devil, this old toothless lion in Jesus' name. And I thought, come on, you don't talk that way. And I just cringed at this sort of conversation because I wasn't, I mean, I was tragically, but not surprised to learn a few months later that this guy had been found out in, a, in a adultery and had lost his church and his church had split to pieces. Now, this is what I find is happening again and again. I do not know how many pastors that have come to me openly or secretly and confessed to me that they got their new personal computer at home and before long they had accidentally tripped onto one of these foul pornographic sites on the internet and were now captivated by that porn. I'm not talking about one, I'm talking about dozens in my own sphere of contact. So across America, it must be multitudes of men who know how to make charismatic noises and yet cannot live in victory in their hearts. And to go to war with that kind of unclean army will have exactly the same result as we read about in the, in the early book of Judges. And of course, the ark was taken... Eli, as you know, fell backwards and died. Hophni and Phinehas were killed. The wife of Phinehas gave premature birth to, to the baby. The baby was called Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. The ark was carried off into the temple of Dagon, where the Philistines put it alongside their God, and then all kinds of troubles broke out upon them. So then they send the ark back to the people of God. They come, if, I'm sure you know all this, but let me just remind you, they come to the land of Beth Shemesh where the people of God are out in the harvest fields and when they see the Ark of the Covenant coming, they rejoice. 
But then they've always wanted to know what was inside the ark, so they lift up the lid, 52,000 of them drop dead, and they think, wow, this is difficult to live with this holy God. And they make this amazing statement. They said, who can live in the presence of this holy God? And that's a very good question. See, when the Spirit of God came to our Baptist church in 1965, I mean, none of us had ever, ever had God's presence in our church meetings. We'd had good Baptist tradition for but we never ever had a church where God was. <laughs> and I, like a number of others, was hungry for God, but you see, when God shows up, it, it does mean that uh, you're going to have to change a few things. See, I was quite convinced that God was British, all British people are, that he, that he, he talks a bit like the Queen, only with a male voice. And I was quite sure that God was a Baptist that he would come to my church in a respectable British Baptist, although the church happened to be in, a, in India, it was still a respectable British Baptist because that's the way the British are. And I expected God to come to this church in a respectable British Baptist way and not, no, not disturb anything too much, but just make it alive. I was hungry for God, I was desperate for God, and I knew that what we were in was dead, but I didn't know how to get the life of God to fit properly into a proper, respectable Baptist mould. Well, my trouble began when God came. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I went through all those experiences, which we should look at later. When David finally gets the ark to come back, he's angry and confused and frightened and everything all at once when God comes, because he doesn't know how to deal with his holy God. And I didn't know how to deal with his holy God. I remember a tape years ago, which Bob Mumford made, and he said that he was praying one day. And God said to him, he said, Mumford, you and I are incompatible and I don't change. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. And, I, and it was exactly where I was, and I know exactly what that means. And we've got to change to work with God. But these men of Beth Shemesh were faced with one of two options, changing in order to work in the harvest field with God. And to me, this is a picture of many great evangelistic ministries which are making a lot of noise, raising a lot of money, having a lot of activity, but are producing very little fruit. In America, we have not reaped a harvest of lost souls of any significance for probably at least 50 years. Maybe a little bit happened in the 60s during the Jesus movement, but that was the last time God really touched people who were outside the church um, machinery. Would you agree with that? And we in America, we are in desperate need of the breath of God to come and show us again how to evangelize lost people. With all our activity, and while I thank God for the Jesus video and all it's doing in India and other places, I do not feel at all convinced that putting one of those uh, uh, videos in everybody's home in America is going to make a scrap of difference to people. Because it's all there if they're bothered to look already on their television, but it's not going to work that way. That's not what's going to do it. Just as dear old Rainer Bonke, who I think the world of, I did not feel at all convinced that his minus to plus book being put into every home in America was going to make any difference either, and as far as I know, it didn't. And it hasn't, and it won't, because that's not the answer to this thing. 
because we've got to get God to work with us and he, he can't work with us at this present time because there's so much that's stinkingly wrong with so many of our, of our great national organisations. But this is the tragedy that I find so frightening and I hope it will frighten you is, is that these men of Beth Simash, when the presence of God came and they found that they were incompatible with this holy God. They had to make one of two choices, either to radically change their way so that they could work with God, or the only alternative was to continue as they were and get rid of God. And that's exactly what they did. They said, where can we set? We can't work with this holy God and we don't intend to significantly change our ways. So where can we send him? Because we don't intend to alter the basic way that we work in our particular organisation. And they sent him off to a, the house of a man called Abinadab, which I'm sure you know. And the name Abinadab means the one who was willing. That's what the name Abinadab means. And I tell you, that's where we've been in America for the last 50 years. You find an occasional man, an occasional woman there who's willing, who's willing, and God's working with them as an individual. But we're not seeing this across the map in the nation of America right now. Amen? Amen. And so the house of Abinadab was blessed, but the rest of the nation just didn't make a lot of difference because they didn't really need God. They carried on with all their religious programs just as effectively, just as efficiently. And David was born into that situation. He was born into a situation where no one had had any real living contact with God for decades. We're told in scripture that no one sought God all the reign of Saul. If you count it all up, you've got 20 years before Saul came to the throne. You've got 40 years of the reign of Saul. You've got seven years while David reigned from Hebron. It's almost 70 years that the nation of Israel had never had an active involvement with the living God. But the, the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes the presence and the glory of God, was off in someone's house. It was sidelined. But the great activity of the tabernacle of Moses and all the religious life, that went on okay, but they managed perfectly well without God. Well, they thought they did. And David, who I'm sure from time to time went to the tabernacle, whether alone or with his parents, I really don't know. But what he found was in the tabernacle, he got this religious formula that didn't minister to life. But out on the hills, when he was playing his harp and, 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 and seeking the, the God of Israel, the God of his people, God would come to him and minister to him. And he thought, well, I get a far better time on the mountain with God than I do in this official place of religion where I have to go according to the law of Moses. And I tell you, we have to be very, very uh, honest. Well, I think we need to be very repentant that we've produced an atmosphere where young people in our nation have been turned off to Jesus because of the way we've introduced them to the religion of Christianity. And, and I was a product of that in the, in the United Kingdom. I mean, I was sent to church every week by my parents. My dad was a deacon in the Baptist church and he was, a, I think, a weakly God-fearing man, although there was nothing very vital about him. And this church was liberal, and it was boring and it was dead. And at the age of 14, and I'd seen the fights that went on between the leadership, I'd seen the carnality, 
And I thought, well, if this is Christianity, you can keep it. So at the age of 14, I rebelled against the whole thing and, and I, I didn't want to go to church. I want to have nothing whatever to do with Christianity. And then I trained as a scientist and in my you know, studies, it became culturally acceptable to become an atheist. Science had the answer for everything. So I became a scientific atheist, not by conviction so much as by convenience. If there wasn't a God, I hadn't got to bother about that anymore. And I could just go out and make money and, and, and seek a, a career for myself. And that's how I lived until finally God broke into my life and gloriously saved me. But then I became a missionary and went to India. One of the tragedies of being in India was to see the tens of thousands of young Americans and young Europeans coming to India to seek an answer to life in Eastern mystic religions. There was a guy in Pune called Maharishi, something or other his name was, and he'd have up to 10,000 Americans and other Europeans sitting at his feet while he taught them this garbage of self-realization, and they would pay a lot of money to do this. And as we got amongst these young people and began to, to teach them and preach them about Jesus, I tell you, they all said to me, well, we tried Christianity, but we found it irrelevant. You see, that was the problem with Nathaniel. He'd been brought up in religion, but when he touched the living Jesus, the guy caught fire. I tell you, uh, the young people of America are waiting to catch fire. Yeah. If only they can really meet the living Christ, and in total abandonment to him. And we're going to have to get absolutely used to the idea that they will not come back into the traditional formula that we have become used to. It's going to be something absolutely new, and our responsibility is not to try and put them back into the old mould, but to help them not to go off into any... Um, erroneous sidetrack. That's going to be our responsibility. But it's going to be a new field completely. And, and the, the interesting thing is that if they really believe you've got a life in God and you really know God, they really want your input. They're not against our generation, providing it's not dead religion. In fact, they feel insecure without that fatherly input into what they, because they're groping into this new world of the spirit. They realize that there are dangers and they want some guidance and some help, but they don't want dead religion. Yeah. And that's why we're going to have to accept some pretty radical change in order to, to bring forth the kingdom as God wants it to come forth. Amen? And so anyway, I'm not going to spend time on Saul, but I've got some notes here which we're going to duplicate for you. I'm not sure I'm going to take time even going through them, but I just felt God talk to me last night. Maybe I'll just spend a few minutes on this and, and then I'm going to give you another four pages of notes once we've had time to duplicate them. Is that okay? But, but it, it really is, is, I want us to consider the mighty men that the kingdom has got to have. And, and by the way, let me say this. When I talk about men, I'm talking about men and women. We're going to show you this afternoon that the kingdom went through four phases. And they were necessary because God had to lead the sheep gently into the fullness of his revelation. And, and, and the final revelation of the kingdom is where men and women stand equally gifted, called and empowered to forcefully advance the kingdom. It wasn't until the fourth phase of the kingdom that women got their full release to stand alongside the men, in, including apostolic ministry. And I'm going to show you that that's not heresy. That's what God is powerfully and presently saying right now. 
but in all the Old Testament imagery, you'll find that, that the mighty men in the Old Testament were all men, but in the New Testament, more than half the mighty men were women. Hello. I remember the words of General Booth, the founder of the, of the Salvation Army, in I think about the year 1910 in the city of London. And he was talking to a friend and there was these, this group of incredible, powerful, intercessory women that were turning that city upside down. And he said to his friend, he said, you know, these women are the mightiest men I've got. <laughs> Amen. You know, you see, as we will see, when we really get into that, that um, fullness of the risen Christ kingdom ministry, in that realm there, there is neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither free nor slave. There's, there's nothing but all the fullness of sonship. Now, sonship in the spirit is equally for women as it is for men. All right. So when you hear me talk about men, men, I'm talking about equally women, as long as you come into the fourth phase of the kingdom. Amen? All right. Now let's just, just let me just say a few things. Um, we're told these things, which I'm sure you know. Let me remind you. We're told in Matthew 11, 11, that we have to get, to, to come into the kingdom, we have to be greater than John the Baptist. It's the minimum qualification. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So let's just think about that for a moment. I mean, let's these words not just be trite sayings, but let them become revelation inside us. And if you don't know what that means, then there is a set of tapes called Crossing the Line, where I deal with the difference between John the Baptist ministry and kingdom ministry. Because I, in my opinion, a good three quarters of the evangelical church in America is still living in John the Baptist Christianity. And I give seven reasons why I'm convinced of that and of how we need to cross over into the lion. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. If you'd like to turn for a moment to Zechariah chapter 12, which we're going to be looking at, I think, in the early part of tomorrow, looking at the book of Zechariah. It's one of those great prophetic scriptures which deal with the, the building of the city and of the temple, and is a type and shadow of that heavenly city. Let's go to Zechariah, it's right near the end, just before Malachi. Just let's go to chapter 12, verse 8. And I, I hope to show you that this is the day, I hope you'll be convinced that this is the day that's being talked about. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem the one who is feeble among them in that day should be like David. Or as another translation has it, the weakest. The weakest will be like David. And then it says the house of David, which I hope to show you we are in all its spiritual fullness. The house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall... Um, I'm sorry, I've, I've jumped to the wrong verse. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. One incredible statement. So the weakest is going to be like David. Imagine a church where the weakest of your members is like David. <laughs> Just think what you could do. <laughs> Man. Okay. Now, 
I put a few things down here and that, that, that we, we see we're told about the Lord Jesus. He was a mighty man in power and deed. We're told this about Stephen. So we're told this about Philip, a man mighty in power and deed. And the power is by the Spirit. Now the Spirit came mightily upon certain people in the Old Testament, but some of them blew themselves up with the power. And I've got two examples here. One of them was Samson and the other one was Saul. And then I come down focused here, and I just want to deal with this bit, is, is what, I've got this question here, which God was talking to me about two o'clock this morning. What, called Saul, what caused Saul to fall and David to stand? And we need to know so we can learn from their example. And what I've got down here is that Saul only paid lip service to seeking God. He went through the motions, but he had no real heart for God. And I want to ask you whether you have that hunger for God. And if not, will you ask God to change your heart? We find that David sought a real relationship with God, and he had a real heart for God. And his passion was to bring back the ark. He's always seeking God's face. And God gave him strategy of how to beat the enemy. I'll give you all these notes. I'm not going to do it all now. I think we haven't got time for it. The next thing I've got down here is that Saul led by harsh legalism and authoritarianism. He had rules instead of knowing God. And you find that particularly in 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan disappears on his own initiative to go off and, and attack the Philistines and there's a big uproar in the Philistine camp and Saul doesn't know anything about it, he hasn't authorised it, so he becomes desperately insecure. What's going on? It's like a youth leader that has a fantastic meeting and the power of God comes and the pastor of a Saul type pastor says, you didn't ask me about this. Two hundred kids have been transformed by the power of God. He says, "But I wasn't consulted about this, and, and you know, I want you to understand that you're under, you know." And you think this guy's so insecure when God works outside his governmental structure that he makes him feel scared. You know what I'm talking about? It's, you study Saul and say, God, I don't want a trace of that in me anywhere. And if there's a swordish tendency, if there's a swordish tendency, kill it. And, and on the other hand, you find that with David, he had this passion for God. He, he, I've got some notes down here. He, he's, he's called so many times the shepherd of the house of Israel. He's a father. Some, I mean, we could turn to so many great scriptures here to 2 Samuel 23, where he's called the sweet psalmist. He's the, he's the guy that wants to be there worshipping God before anybody else. Now, that's a good mark there. You say, well, why weren't you here this morning? Well, I would, I would long to have been here this morning, but I was just getting ready for the, for the teaching. There's got to be, sometimes you've got to give your priority to the word, but, but my heart was to be here. Amen? And that's got to become a heart. And if it's not, God can change our heart. We've got 
attitudes to prominence and position. You see, the interesting thing is that Saul seemed to be so humble. When they came to look for him, he was hiding in the stuff. But you know, as I was praying, God said to me, you know, it wasn't real humility. The thing that was troubling Saul was this, that he wasn't sure he could do it. And he didn't want to make a fool of himself. It wasn't humility, it was, it was insecurity, it was uncertainty that he could handle it and he'd rather not do it than do it badly and make himself look stupid. So actually the motivation was all the time, how good will I look? And then when he found that he could do it, then it became like a drug that he couldn't let go of then. Once he got prominence and position and found that he could stand before people and the anointing of God did make him look good before the people, then he couldn't live without it. And you've got to answer this fact. I have to answer this fact. I mean, I, I remember <laughs> when I went back to India the second time at great, great cost and sacrifice, and I went back to work with a, a real Saul. I won't go into all the detail. I won't tell you his name. I won't even tell you what nationality he is. But I worked under a Saul. I know what it's like to work under a Saul. And I went back there and, and I was ever so humble. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I don't need a prominent position. I can just sit at the back. And when you are always being asked to speak, it's very easy to think that's true. So God said, all right, let's see whether you really have got a humble heart. So for 18 months this guy was so scared of my ministry because it was, it was, you understand what I'm saying, it was more powerful than his in some respects and that frightened him. He didn't say, oh thank God I've got another mighty man of God to preach, but this guy could undermine my position. So he put me in the back row and would never let me ever speak. And that went on for 18 months. Well, as I listened to him, before long the devil was starting to pull his ministry to pieces and saying, look, you could do better than that, which I could. So I began to be this man's worst critic. And then God convicted me. He said, I thought you were so humble you didn't need to preach. <laughs> and I had these deep dealings of God and he said, look, I, look, I put you under this man to learn things. He said, you've got to learn the principles of David that he learnt. Because Saul was part of the the graving tool that made David the mighty man of God that God finally was able to, to make him become. So he said, what I want you to do is I want you to start praying for this man and longing for him to be powerful and effective in ministry and rejoice when he preaches well and the people actually like it. And that was very difficult. But I finally obeyed and my ministry for 18 months was to pray for a lousy preacher into becoming a good preacher. And I would drop him little hints about where he would find the right scriptures to put it better. And, 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 and I was all the time trying to emancipate this man. And I tell you, I learned a lot in those 18 months. But I got to the place where I could actually rejoice in this man being used of God and becoming effective for God. And then the time came eventually when God took me out from under that covering and released me. And then... I tell you, but I never ever forgot those lessons and I pray that I never will. And I hope that you are the same. So when God starts to use you, and some of you are going to have such an anointing come upon your life, because God's got to find men and women that he can powerfully anoint, but who will stay like David in their hearts. And even though incredible things happen through you, you still know at heart that you just are nothing nobody that God's just decided to pick up and to use. 
I tell you, he's, he's looking for such and seeking to raise such up across our nation right now. Amen? Okay. You've, let's go to this uh, lovely, lovely scripture. Second Samuel. You don't mind me sort of wandering a bit, do you? Because I just feel I've got to touch some of these things. Second Samuel chapter 3. Verse 39, it's one of the verses that leapt out of me this morning. Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 39. And, and it was after this political killing of Abner, which the king David had nothing whatever to do with. Verse 38, and then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince, a great man, has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. Listen to that. I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zuriah, are too harsh for me. You see, what had happened was this, that David found himself in an atmosphere of political intrigue that all those years in the house of, of Saul had produced. And here's another warning for us all. You know, if you run a church politically, and some people do that, what they produce is they produce a house because what we discover is that after Saul died, the house of Saul continued with tremendous power to resist David for almost 10 years afterwards. So if we, if we, if we run a church by, by politics, we, even if we were to die or to go to be with the Lord, what's left behind is a house that only knows how to run by politics. Does that make sense to you? And, and the house of Saul had only known how to work by political intrigue. And here's David now trying to bring in the true kingdom, but he's hitting this problem all the time of all the political manoeuvrings and manipulating that had gone on acceptably under the reign of Saul. It had now become part of the fabric of this new kingdom that God was trying to raise up. And although it offended David's heart, most of his life he battled against it. Just, can you hear what I'm saying? And, and we've got to powerfully uh, pray that the, these things might, might be driven out of the systems that we are even sometimes inheriting. All right, that, I think I'm going to, I have a feeling that I'm going to just leave that, give you the notes, and you can sort of meditate on it at your leisure, as we would say. So David's anointed king. And we find in, in that Samuel does it somewhat fearfully, although it's at the express command of God. It, and that's, that's 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 14. And the reason is because God... Let's, no, let's go back to 1 Samuel 15. I'm sorry, uh, I'm a bit woolly this morning. Come to 1 Samuel 15. And let's see the reason. Come to verse 10 of 1 Samuel 15. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set Saul up as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, listen to this, verse 12, he has set up a monument for himself. And then Samuel 
finds Saul, and Saul comes to him in verse 13 and says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel says, well, what's this bleating of sheep in my ears? And he says, well, they, they the people, he passes the blame onto the people, the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen, but he says it's for a sacrifice to the Lord, so surely that's okay. And so Samuel says in verse 17, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you as king? Notice that when you were little in your own eyes, it was possible for God to anoint you as king. And God did anoint you. But now the Lord sent you on a mission, told you to utterly destroy Amalekite. Why then, verse 19, did you not obey the voice of the Lord? He says in verse 20, but I did obey the voice of the Lord and did go out on the mission on which the Lord sent me. But I brought back Agag the king and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plan the sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. But they did it to offer as a sacrifice to the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel says, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he has in obeying the voice of the Lord. And then we're told this in verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so he's, the kingship's taken from him. And then Samuel sent to anoint David. And God says to him, I've provided myself a king among the sons of Jesse. We read in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. But we're told in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. We find that while Saul was alive, he fights against David to keep his position. We could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. He even knows and confesses at one point that God has already given David the kingdom. Let's go to that for a moment. 1 Samuel 24. And here's, here's Saul speaking to David. See, David's had the chance to kill him. He's strongly urged by his leaders that this is God's opportunity to deal with him, but he absolutely refuses to touch the Lord's anointed. And, and we read in verse 7, David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul got out of the cave and went away. And then he calls Saul and and. and Saul lifts up his voice and weeps, verse 17. Then he says to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I had rewarded you with evil. You've shown this day how you dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hands, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Verse 20, And I, now I know indeed that you surely shall be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear not... Now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore and Samuel went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, that didn't stop Saul. 
continuing to attack him. I want you to see, on the other hand, the tenderness and integrity of David's heart and his amazing reverence and respect towards Saul as the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't let his own close leaders mislead him to do what was wrong. Let's go on now. See, that's what Saul says in 1 Samuel 24, but you come to 1 Samuel 26. And Saul is out after David to kill him. So that temporary sort of flash of honesty in reality didn't last too long. And the demon controlling him comes back and takes over him. And once again, Saul's out to get him. And once again, David is able to go and take the life of Saul if he wants to. And Abishai said to David, verse 8, God has delivered your enemy into your hands this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him just once with the spear. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said furthermore, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord. If God wants to deal with this guy, let him deal with him. I'm not going to be the instrument here. Now let, let that soak in. And let's, let's honestly think of us. How many of us have allowed that incredible heart of David to come upon us when we find ourselves in these sort of situations? How many cities and places there are when we've got this sort of Saulish um, leadership and yet here we're given the biblical way to deal with it? And if we'll just walk the thing out in God's way, then what comes out of that is a man who has not compromised and not used ungodly methodology for the, for the purposes of... Eventually, God's going to raise him up and God's going to use him or her in a powerful way. I tell you, when I learned these things and found myself in that situation, I, I had to... Oh, boy, it's hard to obey God, isn't it, in these situations? But all oh, the fruit that comes because we will obey God. And without that kind of integrity in the heart of David, the kingdom would have been polluted from the day that it was established. So David's anointed, but he has to wait quite a few years. I've calculated it's something like 14 years before he in the will of God and in the timing of God came into the kingdom that he'd already been anointed to lead. I've done, in, in verse 21, I've got this little bit about Jonathan, but I've already said that to you. We, if you read, and you can read this, you read in 1 Samuel 18, you read in 1 Samuel 20, you read in 1 Samuel 23, you read Jonathan's, the covenants he made with David, and he even declares, he knows it from the Lord, that he's going to be next to David in the kingdom. That's what he says. And I say that Jonathan had a beautiful character and was a loving, loyal man. But did he allow his loyalty to his father to overrule his covenant promise to David and his clear understanding of God's will? Now that's something that some have to face. I've watched this happen with men and I've seen them miss God's best because of wrong loyalties. When I, um, Eileen and I got married, um, obviously, I wasn't a Christian, wasn't in ministry. Her parents thought it was great because I had a good job and it looked like I was going to have plenty of money to 
look after her, and, and I was sort of like a, a social asset to the family, if I can put it that way. But then when I got this crazy religious mania, we went to tell her parents that we were going off to India as missionaries. He stood there and he said, over my dead body. That's what he said. And I tell you, my precious wife had to make a decision whether she was going to obey God or whether she was going to obey her, her family. That was a tough decision. And uh, we have to face these things sometimes. I remember standing there in Bombay when the, when the Spirit of God came down upon us and uh, there was a great rising up of evangelical opposition to me and it would have been so much easier just to tone the thing down and just be acceptable. But I, I just, with my wife Eileen, we just said no, we're going we're gonna to obey God whatever it costs. And uh, it looked like we were going to lose everything, but actually we gained everything. We saw God move in this powerful and wonderful way. And we're going to have to face these things, and are facing these things right now. Okay, let's move on. David then comes to Hebron and is anointed king by his own tribe. He lives there among his own tribe for seven years and six months. Hebron means fellowship. I'm sure you know that. But you see, he cannot begin to establish the kingdom until two things happen. He had to be recognized by all the tribes so he can lead the whole nation. And the kingdom had to be built beginning in Jerusalem. It could not be built in Hebron. And I believe we're in that situation in quite a few of our towns and cities where God is raising up men who've got apostolic leadership in our cities but they're not being recognized by the city. What do they do? Do they go around um, in a fleshy way to get themselves known and exalted or do they wait like David for God to do it? And it's one thing for your own church, which you can call your own house to recognize who you are, but you can't take the city by just your own church. The city has to, and this, I believe this is where we are, the city has to see who are the apostolic men, or if you like, the, the James or the Davids of the city. You say, well, Lord, who have you raised up? Now, in a few places in America, where that's happened, there's been a tremendous advance of the power of the kingdom. But in many places, that's where we are. We're waiting. God's got his man. He's having an effective ministry in his own church. But as far as the city is concerned, they won't recognize him. And you cannot build the kingdom from a local church. Hello. You've got to do it. And this is what we've got to cry out to God. Oh God, I'm, praying this, I'm crying this out for the city of San Antonio. That, that, the, that those that um, are the tribal heads, if I can put it that way, that they'll recognize whom God has placed among them. I'm crying out for the cities of Texas, for Houston, and for other places, that if only we will recognize and receive these men, then very quickly the kingdom can come, and very quickly our cities will experience transformation. But we have this period of seven and a half years where David was recognized by Judah and at some point by Benjamin. And that was probably the, the, you know, the political maneuverings of Abner which got Benjamin to recognize David. But then we were in stalemate for seven and a half years while he waited for that anointing 
to come until the whole city recognised who he was. Once the whole city recognised, then bang, he could start to bring the kingdom in. We're going to have a break now, and we'll look at that um, in the break. Can we just pray for a moment? I just, I don't know whether you feel what I feel, but I feel, um, I, I feel I need a, a, clear, a, a more, how shall I put it? I feel I need a clearer, I need to be clearer for you guys so we can, we can go through this. I want to pray for us right now. Lord, I, I just come to you in all my weakness. I know what you've said in my heart. I know the powerful things that are boiling in my spirit, but I want them to communicate to all of us. I don't want to waste the time of these guys, and I don't want to mumble and bumble, but I pray with incredible sharpness and clarity. The essential things that you have to say will be, come out in stark, shining reality. We'll go back from this time together to see your kingdom come, not just knowing more about the kingdom, but seeing it come in the towns, cities and nations that we represent. So Lord, help us. Help us in, help me in my weakness and in my need, Lord. Help me to be a, 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 a communicator by the Spirit of God. Help us to come to knowledge and understanding. May, may our hearts be quickened by revelation. Lord, now as we just have this short break, just, just refresh us and prepare us to be, to be, to be a clear proclaimer. And for these precious brothers and sisters to be, to be um, powerful receivers of what you're saying to us at this time. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen.